Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Katie King. And I'm Liz Corey. And this is True True Crime Crime New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back to another episode. So if you guys are familiar with our podcast, you may be wondering, is this intro opposite from what it usually is? What's happening right now? Am I having a stroke? Well, no, you're not. Well, maybe. Look at the symptoms of a stroke first. But no, most likely you're not having a stroke. Because... It's opposite day! Liz's boyfriend a couple months ago, hi Elijah. Hi. He thought it would be funny if we, for one of the episodes, switched who says what. And so we were like, wait, when is opposite day? And we googled it, and it's today, this day that the episode comes out, and we knew that because it fell on a Thursday, we had to do an opposite day intro. And it just, when we found out it was on a Thursday, it was like light bulbs. And we were so excited, and we thought it was funny. We still do. (laughs) We're laughing. So that's really all. (laughs) That's all. The case we have today, it's a good opposite day case. It's still true crime. It's still, you know, but there is a lot going on. There's a big story. Mm. There's a mysterious case within a case, and Mm. it's just, there's a lot. It's heavy in a way that there's so much content, and there's parts of the story that kind of just meld together in such a bizarre way and almost in a way that we don't even know if it's true it's so weird and it's a little historical yeah definitely so stick around you guys it's gonna be a good one a long one but a good one and we do love historical ish episodes here it's not like throwing us back to the salem witch trials 1600s but it is old enough where we can probably say most of the relatives are passed on most of the investigation has mostly been ended because most of the original people who were on the case have since passed but there are still a few people who are really into it And for them, I give a lot of props. So stick around, because this is a really fascinating case. And without further ado, today we will be covering The The Mysterious Death of of Irene Irene Copeland. Liz, would you start us off with your sources today? Katie, I would be absolutely honored to start off the episode with my sources. Thank you for asking. Of course. You always do. (laughs) This is totally normal for us. And we totally have done 126 episodes where this is the norm. (laughs) All right, guys. So for my sources today, I have three articles from the Foster's Daily Democrat. I, I love them lately. Just love them. I also have two articles from the Union Leader. And I round it out with a Reddit thread from Unresolved Mysteries just because I like to get some opinions and some theories from these people, because a lot of times they have some interesting things to say. Hell yeah. Yeah. I had information from the Foster's Daily Democrat Times 2, Find a Grave, The Union Leader, Unresolved Mysteries Reddit thread, of course, a YouTube video by Made in Dover, and newspapers.com. Nice. Liz, would you do us the honors with setting the scene? Oh my god, it's happening. I would love to. Let's start it off real easy with a little background. So, Catherine Irene McGreal, who went by Irene, was the eighth born child of John Francis and Anne Riley McGreal in Summersworth, New Hampshire in 1905. Long time ago. Not only was she the eighth, but she had three younger siblings as well. 
Now that is an Irish Catholic family for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So John and Anne, with the most Irish names, were immigrants from County Mayo, Ireland in the late 1800s and found themselves in Chicago. John worked on the railroads and Anne worked as a maid. This was all until there was an economic depression in 1893 and wages were cut a whopping 28%. That's a big deal. Uh Even back then. Luckily, Anne had a cousin who lived in Summersworth, New Hampshire, and she informed her of all these spiffy jobs in town, which enticed the couple and the children they already had to come to New Hampshire. Now, Katie, do you, are you familiar with County Mayo? Is that where? That's where a lot of my family is from. That's where a lot of my family on both sides immigrated from as well. So it'd be cool if, I mean, they're no longer with us, but it'd be cool if they were on the same boat as the McGreels. Cool. Did you travel there when you went to? I did. Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. County Mayo. County Mayo. That was British, but, (laughs) well, it is opposite day, so. Hey, and what's the most opposite of Irish? (laughs) British. You know? I think that's really a good point. The rules of opposite day, there aren't any, because it's opposite day. Let's continue. In 1985, John and Anne built a house next to the aforementioned cousin in Summersworth, and Anne got a job at the mills of the Great Falls Manufacturing Company. I love that for her. We love a working woman. And thus... The McGreal family found themselves a permanent home, and they continued to grow with the eventual birth of the 11 children, most of which were born on the kitchen table at this home. Do I think that's great? No. Do I understand that's pretty much all you really had? Yeah. But this woman, really impressive, because from my understanding, most of them, I think, all survived. Yeah, which is really impressive given the times. Yeah, so good on her. Poor little tired woman. So, also interestingly enough, Irene grew up with an education, which is wonderful. She attended and graduated from Summersworth High School before she took off for New York. Here, she actually attended nursing school at a hospital in New York City. It was pretty common back then to attend nursing school in a hospital. You see that all the time. Like in my hospital, there's this big plaque in the lobby that says something like Webster nursing class of 1910 or something like that. And it's this whole list of names of people, of these women really, who attended the hospital as a nursing school. That's really cool. It's interesting. And you see that everywhere. I remember there's a plaque like that at Exeter Hospital as well. It just was the norm then, and I think it was probably because women going to college, that's not really normal. Not in 1905, or, you know, 1920s, even 30s. Mm-hmm. Still kind of strange. So after graduating as a nurse, Irene was lucky enough to be hired by a very wealthy family as a traveling nurse. With this family, Irene spent the 1920s traveling Canada and the Pacific Northwest, spending a lot of time in exotic places and sending postcards back to her family, which really just boasted of her exciting experiences, which no one else in her family had. So honestly, good for her. Kind of love it. She sounds kind of awesome. Hell yeah. I have a little crush on her. (laughs) She's kind of cool. And there is a picture of her that we know, like there's a real picture of her and she is... She looks exactly how you might think. She has the hair style that is like tight curls pinned to her neck and like that fall just under her ears. And she's got a blouse with the little rough, like she's, yeah, she's a classic Irene. She really is. The photo is in sepia tone. Yep. As you say, Liz. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely it is. In 1929, Irene met a man named William Copeland, and together they got married, and soon they had a little baby girl, Mary Vivian, in 1930. They really got on it. I'm not sure, I'm pretty sure they had more children together, but the only one they really mention is Mary Vivian, who went largely by Vivian. In 1938, Irene and William moved the family back to Summersworth. They were living in New York at this time, as Irene's father was sick and she wanted to help take care of him as a good daughter, as a good nurse. Very nice. And that was pretty much the standard back then, even though he had 10 other children. 
And honestly, from here, she kind of had a rough few years. I feel kind of bad. There was a whole bunch of stuff. First, in 1939, William, her husband of three years, died of a long-term heart condition. Now, this is a little strange because typically it's the wife that dies and the man goes and remarries again and again and again because women just die a lot. Right? Right. Mostly from getting birth. Exactly. But her husband died. We don't know exactly. Again, they said long-term heart condition. So really it could be anything. I'm imagining maybe a heart attack or, mm. you know, atherosclerosis. So like maybe he had clogged arteries. Who knows? He was pretty young, though. Additionally, she lost two more family members. Her brother Tom died of kidney disease that same year, and she had a sister-in-law that died during childbirth. Kind of the norm, but also sucky still. In 1942, Irene's father finally passed away. So that's four years after they moved back to Summersworth. He really held in there. Good for him? I don't... But after these terrible years, Irene did have some luck. She was hired during World War II by General George Patton's family, which I recognized that name immediately. Did you too? Yeah. yeah. I couldn't tell you super much about him, but I knew he was a big deal in the World War Twos, right? Good guy, I think. Should I have looked more into it? Yeah. But I knew I, knew I recognized his name. Um, but she was hired in Washington, D.C. to be the family's governess. This was a good gig for her, and it brought her some success and some decent wages. She now was a single woman with at least one child who was growing, you know, well. And, you know, she just was living. She was doing pretty good. She was educated. She had a stable job with a very wealthy family. Okay, good for her. Once the war was over, Irene found herself back in Somersworth, where she moved in with her mom, her brother, and her sister. It was at this point that she worked for the Summersworth District as a nurse, and it is said that she was very well liked by her patients. Doesn't surprise me at all. Her job largely involved making house calls, in which she traveled by way of a Studebaker coupe, which had Summersworth District Nursing printed right on the side. For some reason, I imagine it making like an auga sound. <laughs> I don't know really what that car looks like, but I'm sure it doesn't make that sound but for the sepia tone images we're giving you let's pretend i love it i think it's more fun right at this point in her life irene had been a nurse for quite some time she was well liked and had several years of experience she was widowed had that one child at least but mary vivian was getting an education at this point in rhode island and she was doing very well and Everything at surface level seemed to be going pretty good for Irene, who kept her last name of Copeland. So she was still Irene Copeland. And honestly, I feel like that is like the trigger line. Everything's going well. And then we always say, of course, until it doesn't. Bum, bum. On May 16, 1950, the body of a woman was found face down on the ground off of Watson Road in Dover, New Hampshire. Two men, Richard Searle and Charles Wood, had left for work pretty early in the morning, and they were headed down Watson Road when they passed a notorious Lover's Lane, which was a little kind of dirt road off the side, and it wasn't uncommon for people to see cars parked there, perhaps later at night, mm. and couples, perhaps, engaging in some lewd activities for the 50s. Mm. This is when they noticed an abandoned car. And at first, you know, it was a little off to them because it was early in the morning. Sure. You know, maybe the couple were snoozing in the back seat. They had slept there. You know, it's May, still a little chilly. I don't know. Yeah. But then they realized, wait a second, we had seen the same car in the same place last night. Yeah. When we were driving home from work. Right. They remarked that it was a Studebaker coupe, and upon closer inspection, they saw writing on the side that said Summersworth District Nursing. Which honestly is kind of interesting that someone would take a very distinct car to a, quote, lover's lane. Which, if someone is, say, having an affair, which is, I think, often used for a place like a lover's lane, that's kind of not a great idea. Right, right. And the two men initially saw the car and they thought, oh shit, did someone steal it? And dump it here. Right. 
And they both pulled over. They're like, I don't know. We don't have a good feeling about this. Mm -hmm. This car was still here last night. It's been a long time. They pulled over. They got closer and saw the woman's body. Mm. Officer Patrick Fagan arrived on scene at 7.10 a.m. He requested that the chief be called, saying that this looked like foul play. Mm -hmm. County medical referee Dr. Forrest Key was also dispatched to head to the scene. Officer Fagan approached the body, which was lying face down in the woods about 30 yards away from the road. The woman's skirt was pulled up over the top half of her body, exposing her naked lower half, and on her left foot was a brown suede heel, and the right heel was thrown near her body. Mm. The woman's red purse was also nearby and some brush, and notably, rolls and rolls of medical gauze that were described as being scattered around her body like party streamers were found in the area. Mm. Officer Fagan also found a half-empty bottle of whiskey next to the woman's body, as well as some papers and a letter under a nearby tree. Hmm. By 9.40 a.m., at least 13 men had gathered between police officers, reporters, photographers, and the medical referee. City Marshal Parsons had arrived on scene and identified the body as 44-year-old Irene Copeland. Her brother, who lived in the area as well, was also en route to verify the identity. Yeah. When examining the car, police found Irene's nursing bag and her equipment still in the back seat, and they also noted a significant dent and a lot of damage to the car's right side, and it looked like it had been in an accident. Mm -hmm. It was very, very unlikely that her death was an intentional suicide, mostly because that same morning she was supposed to leave to go to Rhode Island yeah. to see her daughter Mary Vivian at her school, the Rhode Island School of Design, and Irene had been telling her colleagues and just her acquaintances, people in her life for weeks and weeks and weeks <laughs> that this show at the school was almost as important as graduation. Like she would yeah. not miss this for the world. I don't know if it was like a design debut show or, but it was really, really important. She would not miss this for anything. Yeah. After Irene's brother, John came and confirmed that it was indeed Irene. Irene was taken to Frisbee Memorial hospital in Rochester for an autopsy. Maybe. It was unclear at the time if they were going to actually do an autopsy. It seemed kind of cut and dry, but they thought really, okay, maybe this was a suicide or a car accident. And then the Studebaker coupe was towed to the Dover Police Department. Where else was it going to go, really, right? And because it was the 1950s, the technology and even in criminal investigative techniques like weren't super awesome and they definitely were not as advanced as they are right now so they tried to get the best information they could but they weren't really thinking it was super criminal it really seemed cut and dry to them more on that later but to me it did not look cut and dry no no for so many reasons and again we'll talk about it later but jesus christ so not cut and dry on June 2nd, 1950, just a few weeks after Irene's body was discovered, the investigators spoke with a man named Bernard Crowley. Bernard had been with Irene that night and was most likely the last person to see her alive. Automatically a suspicious thing. Apparently, according to Bernard, he and Irene drove separately to Lover's Lane on the night of May 15th, 1950 to meet up for a little hookup. And that was, of course, the night before Irene was found. This checks out for a few reasons. The two men who discovered the crime scene recalled seeing Irene Studebaker coupe from the night before, but they also recalled seeing a separate car parked on Lover's Lane the night before as well. Additionally, this was a location that Bernard and Irene had been using steadily over the course of roughly a year. They had been seeing each other, not necessarily going steady, but seeing each other at this location for about a year. My question is, do Lover's Lane still exist to this day? And why haven't I seen any? <laughs> is that a thing still? I have heard of them existing. Oh. But I also think that there's now, if you are caught in a Lover's Lane in your vehicle, right. you can get put on the sex offender registry true. for indecent exposure. That's true. So Bernard continues telling his story, saying that the pair had a few drinks, whiskeys, beer. And remember, back then you could totally drive drunk. So it was not a problem that they were having hard liquor mixed with beer at this lover's lane, fully intending to drive home later. Fine. No big deal. 
and after they were drinking their beverages, they had sex in the back of the Studebaker coupe. When Bernard left, Irene's car had been on the side of the road, where it was eventually found that next morning by the two men who were driving to work. Apparently, according to Bernard, she had crashed the car into a tree while backing out of the woods, and Bernard jumped in to help finish backing it out. This could be because she was probably drunk due to the whiskey and the beers. I don't know. Just the thought. Not her fault. I'm not, like, blaming her or anything, but, you know, probably didn't have the highest level of sense at that moment, you know? Bernard left Irene and returned home around 8 p.m. that night. Unfortunately, as much as I want to trust Bernard's word, I can't as much because he did return home to his wife and he had to get home because they were going to an event or something. So I want to trust him, but that is a little suspicious. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the fact that he was most likely the last person to see Irene alive, also suspicious. I think, too, the fact that you're having an affair with a woman when you're a married man is grounds for getting rid of the woman you're having an affair with if you don't want your wife to find out. Just the thought. That's just me speculating. Even with the information from Bernard and the crime scene, the investigation kind of petered out. It really didn't take very much. They gave it a good old college half try and then they were like well that was it she dead and so they did do an autopsy and really all it said was something very simple and and in my opinion inaccurate the autopsy finally determined that the cause of death was simply quote a result of poisoning by excessive intake of alcohol and some derivative of barbituric acid accidental and not with suicidal intent. Which basically means they said that Irene died of an accidental overdose. And with that, that cause of death, the investigation, talking to Bernard, what else was there to do? It was an accident. Case closed. And that's how it remained. For 33 years. Until something else ended up showing up, and everything changed. On April 6, 1983, Earl and Ruth Davis were doing some spring cleaning of their Summersworth, New Hampshire ranch home when they came across a steamer trunk that a neighbor had given them over 20 years ago. Mm. They opened the trunk and what they found was incredibly disturbing. Yeah. Inside were the skeletal remains of five infants each mummified and tucked inside its own little hat box or suitcase. The remains had been wrapped in newspapers that dated from 1949 to 1952. It's awful. Can you imagine being the person opening up this trunk and then you open up one of the little boxes thinking, oh, maybe it's a hat. And then you find an infant skeleton and then being brave enough to keep opening these little boxes. Oh my God. And then knowing probably the smell was putrid. And being in a most likely damp and clammy basement for so long, oh, my stomach turns at the thought just because of the smell alone and the overwhelming images they probably just never got out of their head. That's terrifying. Mummified in, oh, sad. And not at all. Who would expect that? No, no one. The couple immediately called Summersworth police, and the Summersworth PD's lead detective, Patrick Boyle, began investigating that same night. Over the next year, Patrick was able to identify the original owner of the trunk, a woman named Shirley Thomas. He did not mess around. He was interviewing over 200 people around the area that knew Shirley during the 40s and 50s, the same dates of the newspapers that the skeletal remains were found in. It's very impressive. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't say that very often in regards to police work, but he really did just jump right into it. Yeah. And throughout the whole rest of this episode, you guys, I will have nothing but praise to say for Detective Patrick Boyle. He, and to this day, he is very well into his 70s, if not his 80s. And although he's not currently a police detective that is since passed, he is still trying to find out what happened with this case. And we'll get more into it, but no, he is a shining star. Mm. A rare Shining star. Rare. Big capital R on that one. When Shirley was questioned, she told police not a whole lot of information, but what she did share with them really stood out. 
She said there was, quote, a baby snuffing ring years ago and that the person responsible for the deaths of the infants was also dead. Very bizarre, super cryptic, not at all clear or helpful. Maybe a little with the baby snuffing ring, but that is definitely something people say in a lot of like lore around some things like true crime or like abortions, things like that. That's what like pro life people want you to think that there's baby snuffing rings and things like that. So I don't know how super helpful that was. Right. Their whole thing is trying to convince people that they're doing third trimester abortions the day before the due date. Like, right. No, that doesn't happen (laughs) ever. No. Interestingly enough, Shirley didn't really share any other information. And unfortunately, unrelated, she died pretty shortly after. She was never arrested or questioned again. And honestly, she gave this couple that found the trunk, she gave it to them 20 years prior. So she was already kind of old. So maybe it was natural causes. Maybe she was had an illness, whatever. So regardless, she died and that was that. But when interviewing those who knew Shirley Thomas, Officer Boyle heard a lot of random and possibly unimportant information. But there was one thing that stuck out in his mind. Just one little thing. One of Shirley's old co-workers did say to him, quote, this is connected to that nurse that died. And Officer Boyle didn't really pay much attention at first. He was like, uh-huh, okay, yeah. Because a lot of nurses were involved in abortions behind the scenes. Quiet, hush-hush abortions for people of power, politics, anyone that needed one that had money, really. So he was like, okay, whatever. It wasn't until it was mentioned again and again and again by other people he was interviewing that knew Shirley Thomas that he began to realize maybe there was something there. Officer Boyle did know of the Irene Copeland story, and at first he was confused because it seemed as though there was no investigation to her death. Like it was pretty cut and dry, accidental overdose, that's it. Like he had been given so little information because there was nothing. It was basically just a report like, hey, this poor nurse, oh my god, she got drunk, had a bit of a little party drug, whatever, and just kicked it. Oh well. Didn't seem suspicious, just was, that was it. And when he started to look into it more, he got more suspicious, and he got more confused, and started to wonder, is there a connection to this trunk of baby skeletons? And to this woman's death, this nurse's death. This nurse who had connections to people in high places, connections to politicians, connections to World War II generals, places, people, situations that maybe would involve some baby snuffing rings, quote unquote. He was so like, Maybe I'm onto something. And he was under the belief that there was no investigation conducted on Irene's death. Cut and dry. But then he was really surprised. Because he started interviewing officers who had been on the force since the 1950 death of Irene. And really was just to see if they had any memories, any insight. And that's kind of when he made some discoveries. He had some conversations with men who worked whether it was they were officers or worked in the lab or other places, even in, like, accounting or the records department. And he kind of made a discovery. And then it just kept going and going, and I think now that's why he's still in his elder years going hard at this case. At the start of his investigation, where he is now trying to connect the babies in the trunk, to Irene Copeland, not one, but two mediums reached out to him and told Patrick Boyle that Irene was attempting to reach him and make contact with him and that she wanted to tell him that she had been involved with a doctor named Frank. We all know how I feel about these kind of things, but it is very interesting, nonetheless. Makes for a good story. And again, two? All right, that's a little weird. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Further investigation revealed that Dr. Francis J. West from Milton, Massachusetts, had been mentioned very, very briefly in Irene's police report because they had received a letter from a woman in Boston several weeks after Irene's body was found. The woman wrote in her letter that Dr. West should be considered a suspect for Irene's death and that his fingerprints might be able to tell them his whereabouts on the night of Irene's death. Interesting. As the year anniversary of the discovery of the infants in the trunk quickly approached, and Patrick really hadn't had a whole lot of leads other than Shirley Thomas, who was now deceased, right. telling him there was a baby snuffing ring and then the rumors, you know, hey, that nurse that died in the 50s on Watson Road, you know, Irene, she was responsible and she's connected. So the one year anniversary of the discovery of the trunk is coming. And Patrick Boyle is like, all I really have is hearsay and rumors. Let's put some gas in this bitch. Let's get going. Not in those words. <laughs> I'd like to think that he did say at least that, actually. <laughs> Patrick talked with Detective Richard Conway at the Dover Police Department about Irene, and Richard informed him that there was no record of any investigation into her death, but Patrick was given a copy of her death certificate. This is when he learned that they had indeed done an autopsy. Like a legit one, not just, oh, whiskey, barbiturates, bye after the county attorney was also unable to provide more information, Patrick reached out to Leo Bernier, a funeral director in Summersworth. Leo had taken over the business from the man who had directed Irene's funeral, and Leo had been present, not just at her funeral, but at the autopsy. He recalled that nothing was found to be immediately unusual, and this is where he provided Patrick with her official cause of death, as we previously discussed, which essentially was an accidental overdose. Right. Patrick then called in a favor with a friend who worked at Foster's Daily Democrat. Oh, hey. And his friend gave him some newspaper clippings about the investigation and just kind of the things coming out about the case and the discovery. And Patrick realized that there actually had been an investigation in Irene's death. And Mr. Homie Richard at Dover Police either did not know or knew and didn't tell Patrick. Mm. Hmm. Suspicious. He found that the autopsy report said there were no signs of trauma or violence and that Irene's stomach and liver were sent to the state lab in Concord for further analysis. Hmm. This is when Patrick started finding and like highlighting, underlining names of police officers mentioned in the newspaper clippings and showing up at their, probably calling first, probably calling. <laughs> I'd like to imagine he was very polite, yes. <laughs> but showing up at their houses for interviews. Yeah. And this is when he spoke with Gus Korn. So, when Officer Boyle went to talk to the retired Gustav Korn, he found out that Korn was actually active in the case and was investigating it. He was really a part of it. So he was like, this might get me somewhere. Officer Boyle was able to meet with Korn, who seemed super anxious, super uneasy, and the vibe was kind of off. And according to Officer Boyle later, it seemed kind of obvious that he wasn't telling the truth, which checks out. Then, on May 31st of 1984, a year after the trunk was discovered, like you were saying, he had been doing this, was kind of putting some gas in that bitch, I believe is what he said. <laughs> Officer Boyle and Corn went for a drive, per Corn's request. He didn't want to be seen talking with the police officer, which to me... The fact that he still agreed to talk to him is very brave if he was that concerned. Because it was already hard enough to get information from him. It was here during this very... It was here during this very secretive car meeting that Korn very vaguely mentioned a potential cover-up. As Irene was involved with a lot of politicians... A lot of people in high places, like we said, thanks to her job history. And that kind of got the ball rolling in Officer Boyle's head. He was like, okay, I think I'm really on to something here. Like, this is getting real juicy. And I think I'm starting to really make a connection that these two things are connected. Yeah, especially because Gus let him know that the state's Catholic clergy, as well as members of the local government, had attended Irene's funeral Hmm. hmm. The Catholics. What's going on there? The Catholics and the government? Oh, uh -oh. shit. You know something real bad's happening there. 
Patrick learned that on June 1st, 1950, the state's toxicology report released the test results on Irene's stomach and liver. On June 5th, 1950, County Solicitor Catalfo had a brief news conference. And when I say brief, I mean brief. He had to be. He had to keep it real simple. He shared the findings, stating, quote, The original investigation in connection with the death of Irene Copeland on May 16th, 1950, disclosed no evidence of foul play, violence, or criminal conduct. The state... The case is closed so far as the state and county authorities are concerned. Mm, interesting. Sounds really um abrupt. The test results were th- the test results were as such. It was discovered that her blood alcohol level was 0.27, which is three times the legal limit by today's standards. As we know, like we kind of talked about earlier, you could totally drive drunk back then, so not a huge deal. But that is a lot. Additionally, she had 2.65 milligrams per cubic centimeter of barbiturates in her system. I couldn't tell you what the uh, normal dose of barbiturates is. It's probably like zero, but combined, this would prove deadly. And there are some theories later about maybe it was suicide because she's a nurse. She knows. We'll talk about that later. I want to address that later. But it did, in a way for the autopsy those performing it the officers that okay she took a lethal dose of this and that she killed herself or she just overdosed and that's it Mm -hmm. case closed patrick boyle's thoughts on all of this he said he was absolutely dumbfounded Mm. he said there's no way that a nurse who would know the amount of alcohol and the amount of barbiturates that would kill her Mm -hmm. would die in that way and he said that what the police back then thought and what they thought about the autopsy and is that she was drunk and high out of her mind. And then in her disorientation, she somehow took off her underwear, her right shoe, threw her purse on the ground, scattered the gauze all around her, laid down, pulled her shirt up over her shoulders to expose her naked butt. Yeah. And then died. Sounds really, really, really possible. It seems that Patrick, as well as us over here at True Crime New England, hey, what's up? call bullshit. Uh, a lot, a lot of bullshit. Because what? Also, where's her underwear? That was a question I had because maybe because she knew she was going to have like a hookup. She didn't wear any. You know, that's kind of sexy and fun. But realistically, could it lead? Like if it was found, where was it? Could that be incriminating to maybe someone named Bernard Crowley? Absolutely. Just a thought. Patrick stated, quote, it didn't make any sense that nobody, Dover, the AG's office, New Hampshire State Police, had those files. He feels as though there are more files, paperwork, information about her death. Mm. And he feels as though, as well as we're kind of leaning that way too, that these files could have been destroyed to cover up her murder, Mm. especially if she was A, involved in, or B, knew of, this baby-snuffing ring. Right. Especially because it sounds like she was a good person and a good nurse and maybe would have wanted to put a stop to this baby-snuffing ring. Sure. There are actually eight existing documents on Irene's death, which is not a lot, even for the 50s. That's nothing. Yeah, that's really not a lot. In these documents, there is mention that two male witnesses had told police they saw Irene's car parked in the wooded area and another car, like you mentioned before, Liz, parked on another dirt patch near the river, mm. but police never looked into the second car. Which I think is beep, 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 beep. Bad police work. <laughs> Breaking news. We think that there's bad police work somewhere in the world. Surprise. Whoa. <laughs> Liz, I thought it was opposite day. Oh, wait. <laughs> You caught me. But seriously, though, why wouldn't they look into that? Facts. I think they just chalked it up to, oh, it was Bernard Crowley. Great. Mm-hmm. They were just having an affair. Bye. Like, what? Irene's brother, John, who had to identify her body, had told police that he didn't know of his sister dating anyone and that she really didn't have a lot of friends or people really close in her life that she would hang out with or mm-hmm. spend a lot of time with. She had acquaintances, you know, her co-workers and mm-hmm. just people in her life, but no one that she was really besties with. Right. And he had stated, quote, my mother and I noticed that she'd been acting irritable and nervous lately. Hmm. And then I guess the other day on Saturday, I believe she came home and told my mother that she'd been over the cemetery looking over her lot. She said to my mother, she didn't think they'd left room in the lot for her. So bizarre. 
The next paperwork that they have is the document about Irene's blood alcohol level, their barbiturate level. But there really is no mention about what happened to her car after mm. it was towed to the police station. Good point. We don't know about the second car that the witnesses saw. We have no idea if they ever followed up with this Bernard character. Right. We have no idea what the deal is with the papers and the letter found under a tree right. near Irene's body. Good point. Who is this Dr. West guy? That that lady wrote a letter about saying to look at his fingerprints, figure out where he was. Right. And that the psychics or the mediums or whoever were like, Irene wants to tell you about Frank. Patrick Boyle, Irene wants to get in contact with you and tell you about Frank. Hello? Yeah. Patrick's theory is that back in the 40s and the 50s, there was quite a lot of illegal adoption going on. Yeah. Especially with Irish children. There were a lot of documents and things that have been coming out over the last few decades about unwed mothers who Mm -hmm. gave their babies to nunneries who later tried to locate their babies and were either told, like, oh, yeah, we don't know. Yeah. That's a pretty common Irish name. Right. Right. Next time, go to a different nunnery, you're confused. Right. Or that their baby had died. Meanwhile, these kids were shipped off and illegally adopted. Mm -hmm. Mike Mallott, a senior current affairs reporter for the Irish TV network RTE, wrote a book called Banished Babies, The Secret History of Ireland's Baby Export Business. And in 1997, broke a huge story about how over 2,000 Irish babies were illegally adopted by people in the U.S. Mm -hmm. between the 1950s and the 1970s. Crazy. He wrote about how the Catholic churches, surprise, surprise, set up these adoptions and basically shipped out babies and children in their mother and baby homes run by nuns. They worked very closely with the United States Catholic Charities Association, an organization, to ensure that the babies went to, quote-unquote, proper parents. Mm-hmm. When Irene was a Summersworth nurse who went to homes and did routine visits, Patrick feels like she would have known very obviously who in the community was pregnant because she would be there providing them care, yes. making sure they were okay, addressing their needs, and then present for the delivery. Yes. Adoption would have been through either the state of New Hampshire or through the New Hampshire Catholic Charities. And guess what Irene's brother did? Oh, wait. You mentioned this before. He was the head of the New Hampshire Catholic Charities. Wait a second. Oh, my God. That's wild. Yeah. Another theory that was popular around town is that Irene's death could be connected to a dispute about who would get the estate of a wealthy woman named Sarah Rollins, who had recently passed, and whose hearing to announce the recipient of her estate was the same day Irene's body was found. Interesting. Sarah was an extremely wealthy lady, and part of her wealth came from brothels that she owned. What would make a disturbing amount of sense to be related to one another? Brothels and a black market baby ring, perhaps? It's all coming together. Irene, being the Summersworth district nurse, attended to Sarah in her final days, but she also was very good friends with Sarah and her family before Sarah was even one of her patients. Okay. At the court proceedings for a different trial for a man who stole money from Sarah, a woman named Christine Perry testified that Sarah Rollins had asked her to look at a safe full of money in her bedroom closet. And when Christine opened the closet, she saw four shoe boxes and immediately stepped away because she smelled decaying flesh from inside the boxes in the closet. Oh. It's theorized that perhaps Irene was trying to help some of the sex workers working in the brothel because Mm. there would absolutely, in the 50s, be unwanted pregnancies. Yes. And that maybe she was giving the children away to be adopted or that these women were having stillborn babies and they were illegitimate and they had to hide the baby's corpses because it would be on them. It wouldn't be on the men who were frequenting the brothel and impregnating them. Never. It would be on them. It's also thought that the smell of the decaying flesh were corpses of infants, Mm -hmm. perhaps so that the sex workers or even Sarah herself could use the corpses as proof of illegitimate pregnancy for money from the male clients of the brothel. Gotcha. Who do you think would be the wealthiest clients at the brothels? Let's just start with a P and end in politicians. Wait a second. Politicians? Wow. Who was mentioned throughout various interviews about who Irene worked with and knew and even attended her funeral services? Politicians. What? What would look bad for politicians going to a brothel and getting sex workers pregnant? Mm. Huh. 
Yeah. That's really, yeah. Wild. Mm. That is nuts. This whole case baffled me to no end because it's hard to follow in a way because there's so many moving parts at literally like three different time periods that are very, very different as is. So it's a lot to put together and it's really bizarre. So I have like a whole bunch of questions really that there are no answers for. And I have devil's advocate theories and I have just just so many thoughts. The one thing that stood out to me the most was my devil's advocate theory, which was, isn't it possible that she really did overdose? Yes, sure. My thing was, is that people were saying she's a nurse. She knows not to mix alcohol with barbiturates. She knows that you can only do so much alcohol with so much barbiturates. Hello, nurse here. You guys know it. We all know it. I don't know any of that. I literally take antidepressants that say on the bottle, do not consume alcohol with this. I've been taking these antidepressants since I was like 16. I have had alcohol since then. <laughs> like it happens sometimes. Like nurses, just because we have this knowledge doesn't mean we make good decisions all the time. You know what I'm saying? Right. There's literally a saying, nurses are the worst patients. Oh my God. And it's so fucking true. <laughs> that being said, I just wanted to get rid of that stupid explanation. Just because she's a nurse doesn't mean she can tell you the exact concoction and safety of mixing fentanyl with heroin. Like it doesn't, it does not check out. But that crime scene and... Officer Boyle made a very good point. There is no way she threw the gauze around like party streamers and just fell over, pulled her skirt up over her fucking shoulders and died. There's no way. The, did the wind blow it? Dude, come on. Not wouldn't it have blown it back. There's just no way. Come on. Like, let's be honest. And I think honestly, everything you said, Katie, I think Besides cops, some of my least favorite people are politicians. Actually, 100%. I hate politicians. All of them. I hate politics. I hate everything having to do with it. I avoid it like the plague, and I just can't. They are the kind of people who will absolutely, to your face, say, abortion is bad. How dare you? You're killing a precious life. And then on the side be fucking Susie in their van, getting her pregnant, and then as soon as they find out, giving her $500 to get rid of that fetus. 1,000%. And just like you said, who takes care of somebody who's getting an abortion? People like me, a nurse. I literally do that at my job. I take care of people who get abortions. So the connection between these people high places, and Irene, her timely death, and these infant skeletons all make sense to me. Right. I don't think it was just a little bit of a dink, especially because there's only eight existing documents for Irene's death. That's wild. I would not be surprised if you were reading the end of the document, one of them at least, and then there was half of a sentence and then you can't find the next page about where the sentence starts again. Like it doesn't make sense. They don't go together. There's going to be way more than eight documents, even yes. for a case in the 1950s. Yes. And what I thought was really interesting is during my research, Patrick Boyle said it might've been when I was watching a little clip from the documentary. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but Patrick Boyle said that they took him off of the case for the trunk yeah. because they told him he was getting too close to it, too attached. Mm -hmm. And he thinks what he wasn't getting too close to was the case itself. What he was getting too close to were the answers. Yeah. Very suspicious. Mm -hmm. And I admire this man very much for the hard work he has put in. Because that is a lifelong investigation. And he is doing so much for something with very little reward at this point. Mm -hmm. Almost none. Which is sad to say. But... It's such a noble thing for him to do because really, at the end of the day, infants' lives were lost unnecessarily um, and they shouldn't even have been created in the first place, most likely. Right. 
And then this poor woman who more than likely was murdered and it wasn't properly investigated, that's bullshit. And we all know about the connection between politics and the police. You can't spell politics without police. Well, you can, but (laughs) you get the juice. You get it. Right. So it's like the connections are just too much. And I think hopefully someday they're able to find these lost documents because you know there's more. They're just hidden. Maybe they were destroyed, but maybe there are more. Maybe someone did something where they made copies or they wrote something down. You can only hope. Maybe they're in a steamer trunk somewhere. What? Dun, dun. What? Patrick Boyle continues to try and find any further information about this crazy whiplash-inducing case. He was 38 years old when he was first put on the case of the infant skeletal remains, and he is well into his 70s, if not 80s now. Mm -hmm. He stated, quote, at least I have peace of mind for doing everything I could do. Irene's official cause of death remains an accidental overdose. Mike Gillis, a Dover native and filmmaker, is working on a documentary about the discovery of the trunk with the baby's bones and its possible connection to Irene Copeland's death. You can watch a sneak peek on MadeInDover.com. He asks that anyone with any information about any part of this case email him at mike at maidendover.com. Please also give the Dover Police Department a call at 603-742-4646 if you have any information. Although it seems like Irene's death is very much wrapped up in their eyes, there are still a lot of questions about the skeletal remains of the five babies found in the trunk. And that is the mysterious death of Irene Copeland. It's crazy stuff. Guys, we want to know what you think. You can find us on Instagram at truecrimeny, all lowercase, or you can email us at truecrimeny at gmail.com. And you can head over to our website, truecrimeny.com, and head over to our handy-dandy submission tool, where you can send us your thoughts and feelings on this case or others that we've covered. The best part is you can be anonymous if you so choose, and if you so choose... You can go scroll on down just a little past our handy-dandy submission tool and hit the thank you button just below it, and it takes you to buy us a coffee where you can buy me a non-coffee-related beverage and Katie a coffee-related beverage, because she does like coffee, and I, Liz, because it's opposite day, don't like coffee. But I do like Aroma Joes, I like tea, and I've really been into Monster lately. So, just $5 can get me... At least two monsters. (laughs) Guys, for real though, we love you very much. Thank you for listening. Thank you guys. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.